You're listening to the City Light Sermon Podcast, where we are equipping you to exalt Jesus and extend the kingdom of heaven right where you are. Thanks for joining us. Um, like Oliver said, this is a, a series called Prodigal Son, and um, I remember when I first saw this video, and Becca helped me out with that song. I was trying to find that song. I was looking all over the place for it. And what I love the most about just that video and just the song is how um, intimate that language is, talking about kissing on the mouth, right? And things like that can be awkward and uncomfortable, but it shows the intimacy of the father to the son. And we're going to talk about it. I think a lot of us are familiar with the story, but when it comes to this story, the way that the father finds his son there at the end of it, wraps his arms around him, and kisses him on the mouth is, is so special to me because it reveals how God actually is. And that he isn't this distant God. He isn't far away. He isn't out of touch. He isn't out of reach. But he goes the farthest. He fights the hardest. And he does whatever it takes to reach us. And that's my favorite thing about him. That's what I want to talk about this morning. The whole point of this series, now we're going to do this week and next week, um, is to sort of take a break, take a breather from Ephesians. Because uh, Oliver said it really well, but those uh, letters in the New Testament are pretty challenge-driven. It's all about, hey, do this, walk this way. Um, walk this way, Aerosmith, do this thing um, in a good way. And it's a good challenge that I think we all need in our, in our day-to-day life. We need to be told, hey, get up and walk out your faith. Don't just think about it, right? But we did it for like 12 weeks. It was a good series. And now this story here, what's nice about this and what's nice about Jesus and how he told every story, how he preached every sermon, was it was full of, I'm going to do all the work and all you need to do is just receive, and so this, this morning, what I wanted for us is to give you all the opportunity just to receive from the Lord this morning. I want this to be a message that's restful, um, that isn't stressful. I hope you don't hear this and you get worried. I hope you don't hear this and you start freaking out thinking you have to do something. This whole story is about how God did everything. And what he did through his cross, through his resurrection, through the giving of the Holy Spirit, was created a space for us to simply just walk into it. That's why grace is a gift given. Grace isn't something that we earn, right? We've heard that before. And this whole series is just about that, how God went 100%. I remember like Will Smith in the movie Hitch, right? Like he, he talks about, I'll go 90 and you come 10. It's not like that at all. It's all 100%. He goes the farthest distance to reach us, and we just get to receive his love. Does that make sense? Um, the first thing I want to talk about is just give you some, some context for this story. Uh, like I said, I think we're all familiar with it, but uh, I know when I think about the prodigal son, I just think about this really wild party animal who wastes all his parents' money and then comes home feeling sorry for himself, and the father, I guess, forgives him, right? And I, and I think that's a reflection of how we maybe interpret forgiveness, a way that we interpret um, repentance is that God's just kind of shrugging his shoulders, and he, his arms are crossed, and he's frustrated and angry, and when we come in and say sorry well enough, then hopefully he'll look at us and go, okay, I guess I forgive you. I guess you're good enough now. But this story is less about a sinful son. It's less about this kid who's so sinful, and it's more about this father who's so faithful. Does that make sense? The point of Jesus telling this, this parable wasn't so that he can make everyone feel guilty in the room, but, but in the context, in Luke 15, Jesus is sitting at this table with sinners. And when I say sinners, it's not just this person that lied one time, but it was prostitutes, and it was murderers, and it was tax collectors. And you could assimilate that to today. It could be the exact same thing. You would find Jesus probably in a prison somewhere having lunch with all these inmates and probably people who work for the IRS, right? And, and those would be the people that he would be sitting out having these conversations with. And so the Pharisees walk up, who the Pharisees are, are kind of a bad guy. When you think about the Bible, think about the New Testament, Pharisees are these prideful, righteous men, self-righteous men. 
really who are just doing their job, they're looking at Jesus and going, what are you doing with these sinners? Why are you sitting with them and having food with them? Because sinners, compared to a Pharisee, is unclean. And we don't mess with those kind of people. Because if I mess with them, I'm unclean. And I'm out of the club now. I'm out of the Jewish club. I don't, I don't get to do what I do anymore if I associate myself with these people. And Jesus looks at me. He starts to tell three stories. And the prodigal son is the last of three stories. The first one is about the 99 sheep that the shepherd leaves behind to go find the one lost sheep. Right? We're all familiar with that. We're familiar with the worship song, Reckless Love, which is all about that. It's incredible how God would go, like I said before, 100% to go after the one person who doesn't know him. Go after the one person that doesn't know his love, that doesn't know his grace, doesn't know his forgiveness. He'll go that far for that one person. And there's a second story um, about this woman who, who has 10 coins and then she loses one. And how she flips her house upside down, cleaning it, turning all the lights on the house just to find this one coin. Reflecting the same thing, how God would go so far, he finds us so precious that he's going to work as hard as he can to find us when we're lost. But then he finishes with this parable right here, which takes a very drastic and very different turn. It's the only parable out of these three where the father doesn't go running after the son. And it's the only one where the father lets the son go in the midst of his sin, in the midst of his selfishness and stubbornness. He lets the son go and then waits for him to come back. And that's what makes the story so, so unique. So that's a little bit of context. And I'm going to read this passage. Like he said, we're in Luke 15. We're going to start in verse 11. If you guys have a Bible or, or a phone, if you just want to watch the screen, I'd love for you to join me. So this is the last parable that Jesus is talking about. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Just real quick, an estate uh, isn't like one massive property. Um, these men in this time uh, would live their whole lives. If you didn't go into ministry, if you didn't become a Pharisee or a rabbi, what you would do is you would go and build your wealth. And you did that your entire life. You started at a very young age learning a trade, and you would spend your entire life building up a fortune or an estate. And an estate wasn't just money. It was horses. It was cattle. It was livestock. It was um, agriculture. Um, it was basically today, it would be like just getting stocks. Um, it's just all of your assets that you own. That's his estate. And this is a man who we could assume is probably in his 50s and his 60s. He's been working his whole life and has all this stuff, this estate. And that's, so the son walks up and he says, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. And he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. And so, like I said before, I'm all about, I'm a big context guy. I love knowing, you know, what's really going on in this passage. So he's asking for his estate. In the Jewish culture that day, uh, for a son to look at a father and say, hey, can I, have, can I have my inheritance right now, even though you're not dead, you haven't passed away, which was the traditional way to give away an inheritance, he asked him to his face. Now, although that was okay and it was legal to the father, he essentially looked him in the eyes and said, basically, I wish you were dead to me. Can you just give me what you owe me so I can leave? That's rough. I can't imagine. I mean, my daughter's a year old. I can't imagine her being 18 one day and coming to me and saying, hey, can you just give me my inheritance so I can get out of here? This guy's worked his entire life 
to build up all of his estate, all of his property, his assets, every single bit of it. He worked so hard for his kids. And now his son's saying, I basically wish you were dead. So that's like strike number one, right? Right off the bat, again, Jewish culture, he could look at his son and say, no, you're not going to have it. He could send him to prison. He could send him into slavery. Or he could just have him killed, and it would be very legal. It would be okay because he simply asked for his inheritance. But what do we see this guy do? He says he gave it to him. I remember I read this commentator this week, and he said, where the son brought impatience, the father met him with patience and submitted to his request. Very unlike what people were supposed to do in that day. And it sounds a lot like Jesus, right? To do something that's way out of the ordinary, way wonky, like like it doesn't make any sense. But the father's number one thing is he goes ahead and does what no one else would have done. Also shaming himself. People looked at him like he was crazy. So his reaction, like the father, I, I think... It was surprising. It was um, sort of provocative to me. I, I think for myself, like I said, if, if my daughter were to come to me and say, hey, I want my inheritance, I want my money, or I want my property, or I want my car, or, or whatever it may be, I'd be pretty frustrated. I'd be pretty hurt. And I can't promise that I would be walking in the fullness of the Holy Spirit within me in that moment. But the Father submits. And, and I think in light of that, a lot of us don't really do that. I, I know I don't. Um, One thing I think about when I think about a father submitting to the impatience of his son is I think about my own um, bringing up, how my parents brought me up as a kid. The house I grew up in, you guys have heard it multiple times. I've I've said it from the stage before, but just very poor, very impoverished. We didn't have a lot. Um, We we didn't... uh, have a lot of fun extra things. We only had what we needed, right? I remember my pantry was just full of like beans all the time and rice. Like that was our dinner almost every single night. My mom would just cook beans and rice all the time with soy sauce on it. And, and that was just the way we grew up. And the thing was my mom, on the other hand, my mom doesn't have a, a college degree. She didn't have a college education. She had to go work three part-time jobs at Big Lots, at the Fresh Market, and at Bilo. Those were her three jobs. And she would work at these grocery stores back to back to back. So she was never around. And it's not my mom's fault. I don't blame her because she was working hard to provide for me. But the mom that I got when I came home wasn't that mom. She wasn't the, the sweet, caring, thoughtful mom. She was this mom who was exhausted and just wanted to kick her shoes off and didn't want any distractions, didn't want any problems. And so when I brought problems, when I brought bad report cards, when I lost my phone, when I didn't call her back, if I didn't come home on time, I wasn't met with, hey, what's going on? I was met with, shame. I was met with disappointment. I was met with condemnation of why would you do something like that? I'm working so hard for you to provide something for you. Why would you do this to me? And I bring this up not just to tell you a sob story about my life. I mean, again, like I have the utmost respect for my mother. I really do. Because she was a single mom. I'm a, I have a wife, you know, and a baby. I can't imagine not having Emily. How hard it would be, how difficult it would be. I have the utmost respect, but I can't deny that as I grew up, what it did to my heart. I can't imagine um, looking back and seeing if things were different, how I would be today. And I don't blame her, but the circumstances changed me. Because as I grew up, when the bad report card came in, I threw it in the trash. When I saw her calling for the eighth time, I still didn't pick up. If I came home late, I made up some stupid lie about why I was home late. Because I didn't want the wrath. <laughs> you know, I didn't want to get yelled at again. My mom never touched me, but the, the, the way that she would yell at me, the things she would say to me, hurt me way worse than any spanking would. Does that make sense? 
again, I don't want you to hear a sob story. What I'm trying to explain is when you look at a father in the Bible, you look at Jesus for, let's just say it, look at Jesus, who the father is reflecting, the father in heaven. I look at my own life and I'm like, I've never seen that before. And I think for a lot of us in this room, it's similar to look at the father, the father. And maybe for some of us, it's difficult to actually put two and two together and say, you are like that. Just letting us go. Because I can tell you right now, if he would have looked at the son and said, uh, no, I'm throwing you into slavery. I'm excommunicating you. Whatever it might be, had he done that, not only would he, he had physically severed himself from the son, but emotionally, mentally broken his son, lost the relationship forever. And that's massive. That's a huge deal because I didn't get that. Now, you see me and my mom together, it's kind of it's awkward. It's kind of uncomfortable. And it's not because I feel like, again, like there was, you know, just she abused me as a kid. It's not like that. It's just I see who God is, and I'm like, this isn't matching up. And so all I'll say is, as we continue as we move forward, I want to invite you to think about this in the same way, not to look at our parents, and if your parents out there, not to think about yourself and say, am I just messing my kids up? Or to think, like, my parents just messed me up. It's not parents, right? The Bible says that we don't battle against flesh and blood, but we battle against what? Spirits, power of the air, sin residing within us, right? My mom was a person working three stinking jobs. I wouldn't have time for... <laughs> trying to counsel my children, you know? Not that I'm trying to give excuses, but I don't want you to hear me the wrong way, but I want you to take a, a quick inventory of your own heart right now and think about, is there any way your past, not just your parents, your past, your circumstance, the way that you were brought up, the things you experienced as a kid, in school, whatever, different relationships, and I want you to see if it correlates directly to how you're viewing God right now. Because that's sort of the direction that we're going to go into thing I was thinking about as I was thinking about this was we feel afraid to fail because of our circumstances. We, we're, we're scared to sin because of our past, and we're fearful of our own freedom found in Christ. Christ came and brought this freedom of life. He said, I didn't come to, to kill you. I came to, to bring life and life abundant. But I can't believe that when I look at like my parents and I go, that's not, that's not what I've seen. Because that's his heart. For us, each of us in this room right now, is to find freedom, not just free from sin. Say, oh, I'm not, I'm not tied to my sin anymore, but I want you to be free enough to walk forward. I want you to be free enough to be able to look me in the eyes and trust me. And that's why I'm juxtaposing, I guess, juxtaposing these two stories, like my narrative and the son's narrative. How powerful it was that the father extended that grace, massive grace. It's a big deal. And like I said, this isn't our parents who are, who are these, these evil people. It's not our coworkers that are evil people, or our spouses, or our brothers, or our siblings, any relationship. It's not these people that, that we can look and just start blaming. But there is, we do live in this fallen world. We live in this world that's full of sin and full of darkness and full of evil. Okay, outside of this theater. That's how a lot of us would look at it. Outside of here, it's dark. And it's not people, it's the enemy. Since before the beginning of time, the Trinity has been practicing familial connection. The Trinity for eternity has been one in himself, Father, Son, and Spirit, doing family perfectly. 
And the enemy has been fighting for disconnection just as long. Since the garden, the enemy has been wanting to come in and just break it all up. Disconnection, discourse, dissension. I want to read this quote by Warren Wearsby. He's this guy that I was reading um, his commentary on this passage. It was so good. He said, it is God's goodness, not just man's badness, that leads us to repentance. And we're going to talk about that word repentance here in a moment. But as, as we look at, at where we're coming from, it can be easy to, to look through the lens of circumstance. It can be easy to look through the lens of, I've been through this. I went through this. I experienced this. This was done to me. And we can blame God. You did this to me. You're all powerful. You're almighty. You must have done this. But that's where we have to change our perspective and go, but if you're good, then I need to look at really what's going on around me. If he's really good, he doesn't cause evil, harmful, hurtful things to happen to me. I remember somebody was telling me like, you know, oh, I was going through this thing and, 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 and I think it was God putting me through a test. He put this in my life. And I was like, I, I don't know about that. I think God uses the trial. I think God uses the circumstance, but I don't think he throws things in your life like cancer or disease, right? He doesn't do that. God isn't sick. I remember somebody said that one time. God's not sick, so he's not going to give you sickness. God isn't dead. He's alive, so he's going to give you life. Amen? So there's three things about this story that, that, that sort of harp on that word um, disconnection. And we see it in this story, how the son was slowly through his journey, was just facing disconnection, disconnection. We see it in the very beginning. He's, he's disconnected from his provision. The, the father had been, like I said, working his entire life, his entire life to build up this estate for his kids so his kids could grow up and have something to look forward to. But in the son's eyes, that wasn't enough. You're holding out on me. Something I read about was, was um, in, in that tradition, the older son was the one who got the better inheritance, which is really interesting to me because it's, it's supposed to be the firstborn. There's a passage of Deuteronomy that I was going to read, but I decided not to. Um, but this son, I, I can only assume maybe he was jealous, right? He's young. Maybe he's jealous. Maybe he's offended. And he's saying, I just want my inheritance now. I don't want to get out of here. But he didn't truly see his father's heart for him, that he's good enough that he wants to give to him, that he's kind enough that he wants to provide for him. He was disconnected from his present provision. He was disconnected from his perspective. I mean, we'll see it later here. We just read about it, where he goes and works for a a pig farmer. Okay? I'm going to keep throwing these Jewish things out. You better get ready. So, because it's so pivotal in this story. but, But this guy, okay, so he's Jewish. He goes and works for a Gentile pig farmer. Class A, no, no, already. He's a pig farmer. And I don't know if you guys are familiar with with the Jewish people, but they don't see pigs as clean. They see pigs as unclean. That's an unclean animal. If I touch that pig, if I interact with that pig, if I eat that pig, I am now deemed unclean. And back to the beginning, excommunicated, pushed out. So he forgets, like he loses his perspective. He loses where he's from. And he goes and works for a pig farmer, feeding pigs. His whole, like, his whole perspective starts to change. And then finally, we're going to see it here in a moment, but there's a disconnection from position. At one point, he, he realizes that, that everything's falling apart. He has no money. It's not working out. He says, you know what? I'm just going to go be a servant in my father's house. Which just so you know, Jewish fun fact number 17, he, to be a hired servant in your, in your father's household, 
is the worst position you can work. Hired servants did all of the outside work. Hired servants were the one plowing, um, plowing the farms and, 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 and pulling weeds and, and, and picking the agriculture, all that stuff. Dealing with animals and their, their feces and their filth. Like that was the hired servant. You just came in to do a job for me and I'll, I'll maybe give you a meal. So he loses his position, not realizing, like, no, like you're your father's son. He loses all this. And, and like I said before, similarly, we, we, we grow up in these environments where something happens for the son, whatever that moment was, whether it was jealousy, I'm not getting what I deserve. My father doesn't care about me because he's going to give my brother more, whatever it is. That starts to, because of the enemy, he uses that doubt. He uses that shame and he works it, right? He works it, he works it out really well because then we get disconnected. We're disconnected from relationships. We're disconnected from trusting our spouses and trusting our parents and trusting our friends and trusting anybody. We get so disconnected and we're so far away that then when we look at God, he looks completely different. Well, you know what he looks like anymore. Oh, well, if, if you're God, then you must be my father, right? Biological father, you must be whatever. That youth pastor that was telling me I was condemned to hell, whatever it might be. You must be him. I know that's me. So many trust issues I had growing up that I had to work out with the Lord and be like, oh, you're not like that. You're actually good. You actually love me a lot. You're actually really kind. We're going to keep going in this story. Before we do, I just want to read this one line to you guys. The cross of Jesus, it did bring us a freedom from sin. We, when he went to the cross, it was about this grace that covered our sin. But in his resurrection, we also find a freedom to fail. Okay, and why I bring that up is, is in that disconnection, guys, there's, there's mess ups. In that disconnection, there's anger issues. In that disconnection, there's trust issues. In that disconnection, there's brokenness. I've been there. Gosh, I'm still working it out. You guys try getting married and then a month later finding out you're pregnant. I'll tell you what, like it's, it is hard. <laughs> Because you find out not only how you are as a husband, but as a father. All at the same time. You don't get to work it out one step at a time. But all that being said, I, I learned so much, and, and I'm still learning today. All these things, when I look back, I'm realizing, like, my fallenness, my brokenness. Yeah, Jesus died for my sin, but, but now I have to, like, keep up this work. Because he's probably just like my mom. He probably is going to treat me just the way my mom did. He's probably going to treat me the same way my dad did. Or whatever we all might say. We all have our stories. But he's going to be the exact same way. He's calling me to be too successful. And when I fail, he's going to be very disappointed. Right? I feel that constantly. And that's what I'm trying to say, guys. Grace, the, the grace that Jesus gave wasn't just a grace from sin, but it was a grace to mess up. Because what's happening right now, you can look in the scriptures. It says that Jesus is interceding on our behalf. He's the one that's standing right now on behalf of us. When the Father looks at us, he sees Jesus. So I'm not telling you to go mess up because you can. That's not right. That's what Paul says, right? Don't just sin so grace may abound. But know that Jesus has got you covered. That his blood has got you covered. We're going to continue in the passage. This is verse 17. So he's working for this pig farm. He doesn't have anything to eat. 
when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So this brings me to that word I was talking about earlier, that word repentance. Like I remember when I first like was reading about that word repentance, I started getting these shudders, right? Like I, I have such a bad taste in my mouth for that word. Because to me it means, hey, feel sorry for yourself, kind of hate yourself a little bit, and go to the feet of Jesus and grovel and hope that he forgives you for what you did. But I started studying on this word and started trying to understand what does this word mean. This word repentance, um, in, the, in the Greek, it's metanoia. Everybody say metanoia. It means change of mind or purpose. To repent means to take a 180 degree turn in the other direction. It isn't this process, it's a mindset. In the first two parables, like I was talking about earlier, the, the one about the sheep and the one about the coin, in the first two parables, we see this word repentance, and we see that not only God, but all of heaven rejoices in the new light of repentance. This is Luke 15, 7. It says, I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Heaven rejoices when we seek repentance, when we want to change our mind, change our perspective. It's also a part of sanctification, that big churchy word. Sanctification is just working out our faith, right? Part of what God loves is being able to change our perspective. What God loves to do is look at, when I look at myself and, and feel insecure or, or whatever it may be, any of us in this room, the, the, the shortcomings that we face and we start to hate ourselves for, he loves changing our perspective. He doesn't want to sit here and make you feel guilty. He wants to change your perspective, change your mind. This is Luke 15, 10. This is one about the coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of angels of God over one sinner who repents. Repentance is the doorway through which we walk into eternal life here, now, today. Repentance is this moment. It's this transition where the old self comes off and the new self comes on. And our whole life is full of that. It's not in Sunday school over one prayer. But our whole life is filled with repentance, with changing our mind, changing our perspective. Because guess what? The world is still full of evil, still full of sin. And guess what? We're facing that every single day. So I need to repent every single day. I just had this massive heart-to-heart -heart with Emily last night. And I had to repent because I was being an idiot. But my wife was so sweet because she didn't make me feel guilty for being an idiot. She invited me to change my perspective. What if you looked at it this way? And me saying, you're right. I'm going to walk in this new way now. That's repentance. And it's right here in the passage, verse 17. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. Understanding that where you are coming to his senses, he understood what was going on in that moment. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. This is what Psalm 51, uh, verse 17 through 18. Psalm 51 is a passage where David, who was a king, um, he, he committed this, this really rough crime where he murdered, he had this guy murdered so that he could marry his wife. It's really messed up. 
And this is his, his psalm, is his prayer of repentance, his, his prayer of confession. He says, you do not delight in sacrifice, talking about God, or I would bring it. If I could come in and just burn some animal or burn some incense, I would do it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O oh God, is what? A broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, contrite, low, meek, humble heart. You, God, will not despise. See, our brokenness leads to vulnerability and our vulnerability leads to availability and our availability leads to repentance. For the son, he came to his senses. And that's what I'm trying to say here this morning is for all of us in this room. Some of us are here and, and there's things we need to repent of. But it's not just saying, hey, I did this sin. But it's going, I've sinned against the Lord. I've sinned against my father in heaven. Lord, make me clean. Wash me so that I can be whiter than snow. Purge me. Right? Not, hey, can you check this off my list? I promise I won't do it again. Sanctify me. Change me. Move me. There's an old, old Christian song that says that. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on me. Mold me, melt me, make me, move me. That's, that's, that's the father's heart. When the father let his son go in the story, that was his heart. He's going to come back. And I'm not going to make him look stupid. He's going to come back when he gets it. And when he gets it, I'm going to embrace him with open arms. There's one more example. This is Jesus, and it's really funny. This is a second moment where he's sitting with sinners. <laughs> This is Mark chapter 2. It says, While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And when the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, um, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors with the IRS, they asked his disciples, Why does he eat with the IRS and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, and I love what Jesus says right now, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus is known as the great physician. What do doctors do? When you're sick, they make you well. Right? They just tell you, hey man, you really got a bad disease right there. That must stink. No, they come in and say, oh, you're sick. Let me work with you to make you well. There's this question I want to put on the screen. And if you guys have a journal, if you have a phone, I'd love for you to write it down. But just as we move forward, and I'm about to finish up here in a moment. But this is a question that I had to ask myself. How can I trust anyone to care for me in my brokenness and not use it against me? This is the question that I asked myself. If we're here, if I look at my circumstance, if I look at my brokenness, if the call of Christ is to have a broken and contrite heart, how can I trust anyone to care for me there and not use it against me? Because I think a lot of us have been there probably. Maybe you have, maybe you haven't. I know I have. Or my weaknesses, my sin, my, my brokenness was used and thrown back in my face. And it made me fear God. Not in a healthy fear, an unhealthy fear. Whether it was people or, or relationships, there, those moments where, where someone would look at me and go, yeah, but what about this? And it caused me to fear and to shudder and to retreat and shut down. Maybe some of you have been here. Maybe you're here this morning. 
And this is the, the answer to that question. How can you trust anyone? This is verse 20 in Luke 15. So he got up. There's an elevation. Stephen Furtick, you guys might be familiar with him. He has a sermon where his whole thing is, you got to get up. And Oliver always said that to each other. You got to get up. So he got up and went to his father. He's, he's going in brokenness, by the way. He's thinking, okay, if I can just go, I'm just trying to get a meal, man. I'm starving. It's still broken, right? It's a broken repentance, but he's going. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Jewish, Jewish fact number 89. For a man of this much privilege and of this much stature to run in public was unheard of. A lot of you probably know that. It was weird because it, their whole thing was like, no showing your ankles or anything. If this dude's running in his tunic, his garb, you're going to see a whole lot of leg. And it was unheard of. It was disrespectful. It was scandalous. And he doesn't care. He runs to his son anyways. Throws his arms around him and kisses him in public. I mean, I know we're in 2018, but I'm trying to get your minds like, fixed on this moment where he kisses his son in front of God and everyone. His son recites the speech, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father ignores his son, says to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his fingers and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. What? Celebrate what? What did he do? Came to his father with a broken and contrite heart. Right? For this son of mine was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and now he is found. So they began to celebrate. The moment that the son remembers the goodness of his father towards the hired servants preaches an even louder message about the goodness of God. Right? Gosh, just look at this story and then look at how you see God. Are they different? Is he not that father to you? Or is he? Do you wake up in the morning? There's, I just thought some Kesha song. Wake up in the morning feeling like P. Diddy. Um, do you wake up in the morning not feeling like P. Diddy, but wake up in the morning feeling like you need to prove something? by not looking at something inappropriate, by not saying a cuss word, being sweet to your spouse, being nice to your coworkers. Do you feel that? Because that's not him. Because what it appears to be to me is when we fail, in a way because of Jesus, he throws a party. <laughs> Let's celebrate because you came home. That's what I was saying in the beginning. He's gone all the way. Like Hercules, he's gone the distance. He's done that 100%. And all he asks is for a broken and contrite heart. Not a feel sorry for yourself heart, but a heart that says, man, I can't do this without you. The son needs the father to hire him as a servant to eat a meal. 
he's good to his servants, how much better and kinder is he going to be to me? Unlike the shepherd and the woman in the previous parables, the father did not go out to seek the son, but it was the memory of his father's goodness that brought the boy to repentance and forgiveness. Another Wearsby quote. It is the reality and realization of God's unchanging, righteously whole, and unadulterated character that breaks our hearts towards repentance. It's the fact that he's purely and wholeheartedly good. He's purely and wholeheartedly kind. He's purely and unadulterated. It's not defiled. It's pure love, kindness, pure identity that he speaks over us. Though the son remembers his father's goodness with the pigs, he finds an even greater love, an even greater grace, and an even greater pursuance from his father than ever before when he returns home. See, Jesus takes our brokenness, he takes our failure, he takes our sin, and he repays us with wholeness, righteousness, and new abundant life. In a pretty shallow way, he, he fixes us. Can to make all things new? He's making us new. How fun and enjoyable is it to walk in new life? Right? If he's the one who breaks change, why, why are we still walking around like he's holding us back? And the ball attached to the chain is our sin. It's over. If we recognize it, if we commit to confessing it. Just a couple of final things. See, the fattened calf, you know, he says, hey, go and get in the, fat, the fattened calf. It's this undeserved inheritance. The, the, the calf belonged to, the, the fattest, healthiest calf belonged to the older son, which we're going to talk about next week, this poor guy. Here's this older son who's been doing, checking all the right things, and he just gets part of his inheritance taken and given to the kid who just blew his inheritance. It's this undeserved inheritance, the ring Father says, give him a ring. It's this undeserved identity. He puts it back in. Remember we were talking about, don't touch the pigs, man. You're Jewish. Wake up. He gives him a ring and says, and you're my son. And I love you. Embarrassingly kisses him on the mouth. And then there's the robe. It's this undeserved authority. He puts that robe on. He is his father's son. He now has the authority to make commands to the servants. He's not a hired servant. He tells the hired servant what to do. And it's all undeserved. We don't deserve any of it, right? We don't deserve the kindness. But Jesus' cross said otherwise. Jesus' grace said otherwise. When he gives it to the disciples, when we take communion in this room, we're taking an undeserved authority, identity, the whole nine yards. An inheritance that we just talked about in the past 12 weeks that we don't deserve. But it's a gift. Because the father knew in this story and the father knows for us that if, if he would have asked the son to stay or, or told the son he's going he's to punish him, he would have lost him forever. But he knew that if he could go and face his brokenness, if he could go and see how broken his life really is without him, he'll come back and he'll be able to lavish him in love. And the father does the exact same thing for us. There's this verse, and it's the one that Oliver shared um, at the beginning of service, and I love it so much. 
This is Isaiah 65, 24. It says, before they call, I will answer. And while they are still speaking, I will hear. The father from the beginning, that's why he was patient in the impatience. He, he knew where this was going. And he was waiting for the son long before he ever left. So I have a couple questions I want to ask, and, and uh, we're going to do something a little different this morning. We are going to finish with a little worship. Before we do that, there's these questions I'm going to have on the screen, and I'd really love for you to take a look at them. We're going to walk through them a little quick, a little quick. Have you ever really been home with him? Have you ever really been home with God? Um, home to me um, right now feels like my apartment with my wife and baby. When I go home, I feel relaxed. When I go home, I feel comfortable. When I go home, I'm free to mess up. I'm free to burn the food when I'm cooking it. I'm free to not wash the dishes and have my wife come in and say, hey, why don't you wash the dishes? I'm free to mess up because there's no one in that space. Luckily, my daughter's a year old. She can't talk right now, but there's no one in that space that's gonna tell me that I'm not good enough to be there to tell me that I don't belong there. That's home. Is God that for you? When you go into that space, prayer closet, whatever you want to call it, is he home? Or is he an empty house that you haven't walked into for a while? How have you been running from home? How have you been avoiding figuring out what home is? It's taken me my whole life and I still don't have it down but I'm definitely not running from home with God anymore. I'm trying to walk into it. There's rooms in this home that I've never seen before. There's doors I don't want to open, <laughs> but it's home. Have you been running from home? And who can you call home in this season? Maybe there's some of us in this room, you probably, I know a lot of us probably, we know who God is, right? We know who Jesus is. We know the cross. We know our theology. We know our doctrine and um, we could probably get up here and exegete a passage like the back of our hand. But maybe there's some of you in here this morning that you don't have God as your home. I just want you to think about it. I just want to open that invitation and say, who is your home? If it's not him, who is it? It doesn't have to be a physical person, but what is home? What is home to you? What's comfort to you? Because sometimes that comfort is a vice. Sometimes that comfort is restricting. Sometimes that comfort is suffocating and it's blinding us from seeing that this isn't home. See, the sun had to go all the way out to this sloppy pig field to figure out, okay, this isn't home. I remember home. But maybe you don't know what home is and that's okay. Because I've been there. We've all been there. So what I want to do is, if you guys would stand up. I know it's early, it's warm in here, seats are comfy. And I want you to find somebody, probably a group of like three people, four people around you. And I want you to start walking through these questions if you feel comfortable. If you don't feel comfortable, that's okay. I'm not going to push you into anything. But these questions are up here. And, and none of us in this room, including myself, including Oliver, none of us in this room, are better than these questions, right? I know God, I follow him, I love him. He, Jesus is my Lord and Savior. 
right? Every football player, every championship. One thing, Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior. He is. He really is. I promise you that. But there's still times where I don't feel home. Something happens in life. My wife says one weird thing to me, totally innocent, and it throws me into a world. I'm like, wait, what? You know, who's God now? You know, I want you to think through these questions. And we're going to come back together in a few minutes. We're going to worship. And we're going to sing songs talking about how God is home, how he loves us, how he cares for us. Thanks again for joining us. If you have been encouraged or challenged by this message, please let us know by leaving feedback on our iTunes podcast. For more information on our church, visit us at www.citylights.cc.